a roundup of the main business news from China and elsewhere. This is Global Business. From CGTN headquarters here in Beijing, this is Global Business. I'm Michelle Vandenberg. Coming up on the program. Rate stability. U.S. Federal Reserve maintains current key interest rates, allowing flexibility for future increases. New offerings. China's 134th Kenton Fair in Guangzhou attracts more global buyers and showcases latest innovations. AI ethics. Leading minds in the artificial intelligence industry from all over the world gather in the U.K. to discuss the extreme risks posted by cutting-edge AI technology. The U.S. Federal Reserve has kept its key short-term interest rates unchanged for a second straight time, but it's left the door open for further rate hikes if inflationary pressure accelerates in the months ahead. Benji Heyer reports. So, no change. A pause again by officials here in the nation's capital. Following 11 straight rises from March of last year, interest rates will stay between 5.25 and 5.5%. That's where they've been since July 2023. The Federal Open Market Committee, waiting to see if its strategy to contain inflation is working, before it considers tightening monetary policy even more. Its decision, a unanimous one, to maintain current rates, comes at a delicate time for the US economy and global financial markets. There's war in the Middle East, warnings of renewed oil price volatility, and we've seen a recent bond market sell-off, all of these complicating the outlook. The range of uncertainties, as Jerome Powell calls them, means further action could well be warranted if there's new evidence that a fall in prices is in fact stalling. Inflation has dropped from a 40-year high of over 9% to just shy of 4%. Yet that's still double the bank's 2% target. My colleagues and I are acutely aware that high inflation imposes significant hardship as it erodes purchasing power especially for those least able to meet the higher costs of essentials like food, housing, and transportation. We are highly attentive to the risks that high inflation poses to both sides of our mandate, and we are strongly committed to returning inflation to our 2% objective. Inflation's been driven largely by what the Fed says is solid growth. GDP accelerating almost 5% in the third quarter, a strong pace, the Fed says, with consumer spending far more resilient than expected and unemployment historically low. Policymakers, in their statement that they put out on Wednesday, recognising that increasing rates down the line, were they to choose to do that, would likely weigh on economic activity. In other words, it could dampen that growth. Benji Heyer, CGTN, Washington. A gloomy business outlook and inflation fears are starting to influence U.S. consumer confidence and behavior. In September, U.S. consumption showed surprising strength. Retail sales rose 0.7% from August, beating expectations. Compared with the same month last year, sales rose 3.8% in September. While core prices kept climbing, so did inflation-adjusted consumer spending, which rose 0.4% in September, according to federal data. 
But economists caution that such vigorous spending isn't likely to continue in the coming months. Many households have been pulling money from a shrinking pool of savings. For the third month in a row, the conference board's consumer confidence index fell in October, dropping to 102.6, a five-month low. Behind the robust consumption in September, one of the biggest drivers was vehicle sales. CGTN's Karina Mitchell reports on consumers' willingness to invest in a new ride. While the Federal Reserve continues to try to put the brakes on high inflation, based on recent retail sales data, many consumers aren't along for the ride. Seems like the death of the U.S. consumer has been greatly exaggerated based on the results. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I think that consumer spending has been remarkably resilient, especially for experiences, but also for things like car sales. That's kind of an interesting twist here because the supply chain has gotten a lot better. Overall in the U.S., sales of motor vehicles continue to accelerate, rising 1% in September from the previous month. And for the third quarter, global automakers, including General Motors, Toyota, and Kia, recorded a rise in new vehicles sold to American consumers. According to Edmonds, an online auto data resource, one reason for the upswing is because some consumers who held off buying a new vehicle during the COVID-19 pandemic now need one despite rising costs and tougher financing. Lauren Waldrop says business has been brisk at the Porsche dealership she manages in Pennsylvania all summer long. And she says she isn't expecting a slowdown anytime soon. We had a great September. September was actually our second best month volume-wise of the year. So we, I, I don't like to say that we're recession-proof because obviously, you know, we see all the the news out there and it's it's a little bit doomsday sometimes where we're all expecting the other shoe to drop. But we have been extremely fortunate that we have not seen consumers turning away. Rossman is less optimistic when it comes to overall retail sales. He believes they'll climb only modestly this holiday season compared to last year as consumers try to ride out elevated interest rates. I don't see consumer spending falling off a cliff, but I don't think it'll be a blockbuster at holiday season either. Tesla CEO Elon Musk shares that sentiment. He painted a gloomy sales outlook after delivering weak third-quarter results, adding buyers are now feeling the pressure of higher rates. That as the overall average interest rate for new and used car loans now stands at the highest level since 2007. And as an ongoing strike by members of the United Auto Workers Union drags on, it could potentially threaten supply chains. Still, Waldrop says she's not concerned, despite Porsche's slower push into the competitive EV market. The data is there. The, the customers are still shopping. They're still walking into the showroom every day. They're impressed with the product. They see value, and they're ready to spend the, the money. Karina Mitchell, CGTN, New York. Now for more insights on the Fed's rate decisions and the U.S. economy, we're joined by Chi Chang, Research Fellow at the Beijing Foreign Studies University. Chi Chang, good to see you. So what were the key takeaways from Powell's Federal Reserve press conference on future monetary policy expectations? Well, I think right now, uh, Federal Reserve and Chairman Powell has been caught in the middle. Uh, basically, right now, you see the interest rate for Federal Reserve is already in a very high position. And this kind of the interest rate is going to jeopardize the future economic potential and is going to, you know, hinder the whole recovery after the pandemic of the whole world economy. But also currently um, you've been seeing um, the still the inflation is here as now back into the 2% uh, of the ideal range. 
So what to do next, I think, for the Federal Reserve and all the central bankers all over the world and the major economy, they still have a question in there. So they're just going to wait and see what happens. And what are the repercussions of high interest rates in the U.S. on, um, you know, global economic sectors? Well, basically, just imagine if you can put your money bank in the bank for 5% of a risk-free return, what else would you do? You probably would just uh, put your money in the bank and just sleep on your bed, right? And also, the high interest rate is uh, basically give you a in facto uh, shrinking on the uh, real demand and financial demand. So people will cut their expendings. Uh, when you look at the mortgage rate of more than uh, 8% or the uh, credit card rate is more than 15%, you probably will consider consume less. So this will just uh, shine away a lot of the real demand and uh, hinder uh, the further recovery of the whole economy, not only in America, but also in the rest of the world. Um, also, has the Fed presented any strategies or measures to tackle these challenges faced by American households in handling their substantial debt uh, amid this escalating interest rates? Well, I think Federal Reserve does not show, you know, effective considerations or tactics to prevent from this kind of risk from happening. Because from the Fed's, uh, you know, viewpoint, uh, the household sector still has ample, you know, savings in their pocket. So their debt ratio is not hitting the red line. And also uh, the household market is still going on. So I think basically their strategies wait and see to see what happens next. But I think that moment, if it comes, they will immediately try to lower the interest rate and downpour liquidity into the market again, like what happened in 2008 and 2009. Yeah, now the question is when that will happen. Thank you so much for your insights. Really appreciate your time, Chu Tiang, Research Fellow at the Beijing Foreign Studies University. The third phase of the 134th Canton Fair, also known as the China Import and Export Fair, is currently taking place in Guangzhou. The five-day event hosting more than 11,000 offline exhibitors features consumer goods, including home textiles, stationery, and health and leisure products. The first two phases attracted more than 157,000 overseas buyers from 215 countries and regions, with an increase of 54% over the same period of the previous session. Among them, some 100,000 are from Belt and Road partner countries, accounting for 64%. Intended purchases reached a total of about $100 million during the first two phases. Now for the latest on this year's Canton Fair, our Olivia He joins us now at the venue for the fair in Guangzhou. Hi there, Olivia. So what have you got for us? Thanks, Michelle. This is actually my second time covering the Canton Fair event. So compared to my last visit, this is definitely much livelier. We're seeing an increasing number of exhibitors and buyers from all over the world showcasing their products and making deals. So I was fortunate enough to meet many passionate exhibitors at the fair. For example, there's a Malaysian exhibitor whom I interviewed last year, and he came back this year and told me that he's receiving even more orders. He was really happy about it. And also, there are numerous new exhibitors coming to the fair, and a lot of them are from the Belt and Road partner countries. Now let's give a big welcome to one of them, our guest today, Durson. Hi. Do you want to introduce yourself to our audience? This is Dursun. I'm coming from Turkey, a member of Tayash company who exports 140 countries. We are a manufacturer of chocolate and candy products. Thank you for joining us. I know it's your first time attending the Canton Fair. So what is your overall impression so far? This is very impressive exhibition, one of the biggest exhibition in the world. So I was so impressed to see lots of visitors and lots of business opportunities here. I hope I will have lots of orders at the end of the fair. 
And how do you evaluate the Canton Fair as a platform, let's say, for promoting your products? Canton Fair is supported by our government as well. So we come here to present more products to have better understanding for Chinese market and mm. all, all over the world. We bring specially Chinese culture products here to have better business. So we de develop our strategy to have more volume in Chinese territory. Mm. And speaking of the products you brought to the Canton Fair and also those you brought to the studio today, we've noticed there are cute panda designs on the packages. So I wonder what's the inspiration behind? Panda is national character of China. Everybody loves panda hair. Everybody's very crazy about panda. So we think that if we put panda on our products, we can unit our quality and the Chinese character with our products so we can have a better understanding between Chinese consumer and us and we can reach more channel with consumers. This is our aim to have more business in China. We have more focus after pandemic to have more business in China. So we do our research about the panda culture, mm. about the panda history. So we do our marketing surveys how to locate our panda on products. Mm. Any specific stories you want to share with us? Maybe Actu with pandas? Yeah, yeah, actually yesterday I met another panda manufacturer, which is Chinese manufacturer. I'm coming from Turkey and he's Chinese, so we have common character in our products. So it means that we have similar culture each other, so we can unit our products and we can have better business together. Mm, I can tell you really do have great confidence and great passion in the Chinese market. So I wonder, do you have future plans for expanding your business in China maybe? We just set up our Shanghai office, so we want to have more offices in near future to have better volume in China. So we think that we are an international company. If mm. we have Chinese mentality with our international quality power, we can be great brand all over the China territory. For sure, great. So I wonder, it's quite a personal question, would you like to live in China in the future for the long term? Of course, this is the one of the biggest economy in the world, one of the most popular country in the mm. world, and one of the safest country in the world. When I go around the street, I feel myself like I'm at home and I enjoy the entertainment around here. Of course, I have a future plan to live here. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us in the show today. And this is really a great pleasure to meet you at the Canton Fair. Thank you. And now that's all we have in Guangzhou. It's back to you in Beijing, Michelle. Thank you so much for that report, Olivia He and Dersen for us. Now, Shanghai is putting the finishing touches on its preparations for the 6th China International Import Expo. The event officially opens on Sunday and runs through next Friday. Some 3,400 exhibitors from over 150 countries, regions, and international organizations are expected to complete their exhibits today. Reception centers at Pudong and Hongqiao airports are ready to provide services like translation, information checking, transportation guidance, and emergency help for thousands of visitors. The CIIE is China's major platform for promoting China's high-level opening up to the world. This year's Canton Fair is also promoting the trade of the Belt and Road partner countries. China's maritime transportation, a vital mode, is undergoing a transformation towards greater integration, international outreach, and enhanced intelligence. And for more on that, let's cross to our reporter Liu Xuelin at the Xiamen uh, port. So, 
Celine, first kindly provide an overview of the port where you are currently situated. Uh, we're aware that it is a significant component of China's pioneering Belt and Road International Logistics Service brand and plays a role in the Silk Road Maritime platform. Could you elaborate on the current progress of this port and its ca capacity to effectively facilitate international shipping? Uh, well, I'm now in Ocean Gate, automated container terminal of Xiamen Port, Fujian Province, as a uh, uh, first intelligent green terminal in China. This smart terminal has deployed uh, 5G forcing application, and uh, compared with normal ones, this smart terminal can reduce 70% of labor work and improve 30% uh, efficiency by 30%. And as you can see, uh, many uh, every day, many Many cargo ships and uh, uh, filled with goods from Belt and Road partnered countries and uh, birth here. After unloading, there will be reloaded with uh, footwear, clothing, and uh, electromechanical products and restart their voyages along Belt and Road. As far as we know, 80% of total export volume of Chuanzhou, a nearby commercial and industrial city, are exported from Xiamen Port. I think uh, the bustling Xiamen Port offers a glimpse of robust trade links stimulated by the uh, Silk Road Maritime. As a shipping alliance, Silk Road Maritime was jointly initiated by dozens of ports and carriers and logistics service providers in 2018. And since it's kicking off, this alliance has successfully developed and, uh, and released a number of service standards in terms of port services, transshipment services, and, uh, and the customs uh, clearance services, etc. Over the past five years, it has also successfully integrated global port resources. And it has named over 100 Silk Road maritime routes um, covering 131 ports in 43 countries and regions. And also, its membership has risen from, the, from 60 initial entities to 300 diverse members, serving as both the benefit for, as, the, as the driving force and uh, beneficiaries of it, I think. Now, Fujian province, where Xiamen is located, is a crucial manufacturing hub in China. How can the Silk Road Maritime platform be optimally leveraged to enhance the global export of goods produced in Fujian? The trade between Fujian and the Belt and Road um, the, uh, partner countries totaled 4.4 trillion yuan over the past decade, and uh, with uh, last year's figure of 735 billion yuan, up 142 percent from that in 2012. To achieve uh, uh, to reach this impressive achievement, and uh, Fujian province has established an effective and sea. Uh, transportation system linking to over to 130 main ports in the world. And also Fujian has also expanded its capacities of, uh, of China Europe freight train service and adopted multimodal transport, including sea rail transport to link the east and west. And what's more, with its unique strengths in manufacturing, Fujian's main export uh, goods consist of uh, label intensive products, uh, mechanical and the electrical products. And so you can say Fujian is not only an important transport hub, but also an important source of supply. All right, thank you so much for the update, uh, Liu Xieling, for us in Xiamen.
Digital officials, tech company leaders, and researchers have converged at Bletchley Park outside London to discuss the risks posed by cutting-edge artificial intelligence. On Wednesday, leading AI countries, including China and the U.S., agreed to the Bletchley Declaration, calling for a safer and more responsible development of artificial intelligence. And Chinese representatives to the summit said it wanted to work with international partners to manage the oversight of artificial intelligence. John Bever has the details. Yeah, so this summit has been looking at what is known as uh, frontier AI. So this is AI of the future. Uh, and this is what people are concerned about. They are trying to establish what the risks could be and how they can uh, mitigate to stop them. Uh, so this declaration acknowledges that there is the potential for serious, even catastrophic harm, either deliberate or unintentional. So this really is the world trying to catch up to say uh, that they realize that AI as well as offering huge potential benefits, could also create problems. We could have AI uh, being used by so-called bad actors, by hackers, by terrorists, in order uh, to maybe spread misinformation, for, uh, for one uh, example that's been highlighted here. So this declaration is very much focused on um, international uh, collaboration, the community coming together, everyone realizing that AI isn't constrained by national boundaries. So this needs to be a global solution to what some are worried could be a global problem. As you mentioned, China uh, very present here as well today. Uh, the Chinese representative said that uh, AI governance was a common task uh, faced by humanity. China is willing to enhance dialogue and communication in AI safety with all sides, contributing to an international mechanism with broad participation and governance framework based on wide consensus, delivering benefits to the people and building a community with a shared future for mankind. So very much international collaboration, very much something that's being focused on here. And for more on the UK AI Summit's significance and global AI regulations, Neil Lawrence, DeepMind Professor of Machine Learning at the University of Cambridge, shares his insights. Take a listen. I think it's incredibly significant to have the United States and China signing the same document. And I don't think the significance of that can be underestimated. In order to get both those great nations to sign such a document, that's always going to have to be the case. So we'll look back on this moment, but we'll be looking on it from whatever it leads to. And I think it will be seen as a significant turn where we get these two great countries talking again. I can't do artificial intelligence, but any intelligence observer would suggest that we can't even regulate the internet. I mean, you can't regulate AI, can you? Artificial intelligence is just an extension of internet. It's just an extension of this rapid form of communications, which is massively disruptive to the way we run our societies. And there are benefits accruing to certain people, and it's a... Uh, the, the reactions that our societies take institutionally to that take a long time, and it's incredibly difficult to regulate that. But that's not just AI, that's the whole of cyber because of the speed of deployment of these new capabilities. As you say, some big players there, China's there, the United States is there, the UK is there, the EU is there, but I mean, there are lots of people who are not there. Can this gathering and the later ones make any progress if there isn't 
uh, a complete buy-in from everyone around the world. The issues that we might feel in professionalized societies where we have large numbers of lawyers and accountants whose roles they feel are threatened by these technologies are extremely different to the issues that developing economies are facing. And I think many of them are looking on at this quite bemused in terms of the nature of the conversation we're having, when these technologies prevent enormous opportunities, but enormous dangers for their societies. The potential for misinformation to disrupt delicate um, societies is absolutely tremendous. And many people have already died because of that. And I think that it would be worthwhile having more of that conversation as well as the conversation on these frontier risks. One of the world's largest artificial intelligence events for developers is taking place in Silicon Valley, while AI Dev World showcases how startups are innovating with AI. It also aims to look for ways that entrepreneurs can help spread the wealth. Our reporter Mark New has the details. Thousands of engineers, startups, and innovators are attending the AI Dev World Conference in Silicon Valley to show how AI is increasingly taking on human intelligence. SignalWire helps businesses build customer service AI agents in minutes. Some people choose a more robotic voice on purpose so that you know, hey, I'm talking to a robot. Uh, but some of them are, are really, really human-like. It's a bit creepy. You could choose a male voice, female voice, androgynous voice, robot voice. Uh, one of them is actually even my voice. <laughs> and here at the event, you also find some unique display technology, 3D display technology like we had. You can see, you can put an AI intelligence inside it and it can interact with you. Can I ask you a question? Absolutely. Please go ahead and ask your question. How can I improve my brain power? Improving brain power can be achieved through various strategies and lifestyle choices. Founder Raj Sahu shows us how his software, Utobo, uses AI tools to help users build their own online courses and digital products. It also helps users instantly generate blogs and copyright-free images to post on their site. Where the future is headed, I think AI would be used in almost all the workplaces and almost all the possible places you know, you can think of. It's going to be crazy who is going to control, you know, the whole AI thing. Who exactly should be controlling AI tech is a discussion point at this session on how AI is failing marginalized communities. We have to come 80 miles, right, two hours uh, to get over here to Silicon Valley and uh, learn from all of you what's happening, right? And like, we don't see a reflection of ourselves as Latinas, as women, as women of color. Uniform to empower equity in emerging technologies. Born in Nicaragua and growing up in rural California, CEO Daisy Mayorga was often discouraged from going into computer science. In my early career, like I had nobody around me to say, like, you can do this, you know. So um, I had to come those, overcome those challenges myself, but I knew I didn't want that for other people. Mayorga says people of all backgrounds should be writing AI algorithms. If the people training the models have biases and we know who's training the models, predominantly white men, um, here in the Silicon Valley and if that's who's training them that's what we're gonna see and when women try to apply for a job the algorithm could reject their application or their resumes just based on the knowledge that the model has so this is the same thing like when you're trying to apply for a loan um, who has historically been accepted for loans Mayorga says even for AI jobs in her rural community many companies look outside for talent something her group is trying to change by educating and inspiring from within Mark New CGTN, Santa Clara, California. And that will do it with this edition of Global Business here on CGTN. I'm Michelle Vandenberg in Beijing. Stay with us.